New Scientist Weekly is brought to you in partnership with the Financial Times. The FT brings you stories that matter, not only in the world of business and finance, but also covering stories in science, technology, climate change and more. Find out more at ft.com. Hello and welcome to the new, socially isolated New Scientist Weekly. I'm Rowan Hooper, I'm podcast editor at New Scientist. I'm Penny Sarchet, New Scientist News Editor. This is the first of possibly many shows that we're now recording remotely. Joining us in the virtual pod today is New Scientist journalist Graham Lawton. And coming up to, we've got special guests, David Alexander, who's Professor of Risk and Disaster Reduction at University College London, and Kate Jones, Professor of Ecology and Biodiversity, also at UCL. But first, an update on the latest coronavirus news as of this morning, the 19th of March. Yesterday, for the first time, no new cases of COVID-19 were confirmed in China's Hubei province. This is really big news. It's truly remarkable that the virus is being controlled and stopped in this area where the coronavirus originated. There have now been nearly 220,000 confirmed cases worldwide, but it's very likely that this is an underestimate because not everyone is being tested Of those cases, more than 35,000 have been in Italy, and the crisis there means Italy may soon have had more coronavirus deaths than China. Many countries have now brought in border restrictions and lockdowns and other emergency measures, but this week the World Health Organization has called for countries to do far more testing. It's become clear that the countries that have tackled the virus best seem to have done so due to extensive testing and rigorous quarantine. While lockdowns help slow down the spread of the virus, it's really the testing and the quarantine that seems to stop it spreading altogether. And there's been some encouraging news on a potential treatment. Uh, You've been looking into this, Graham. Yeah, so uh, it's actually good news on this front. There are many existing drugs that are now being tested or proposed as a treatment. Uh, There was one from Japan, a a flu drug yesterday, and also an inhaled drug for COPD by a a UK company. Um, There's actually many existing drugs being tested or proposed. Last month, the World Health Organization published a list of drugs that might help. Uh, It was a 36-page document, and there were 78 drugs on there. Some of them are so new they don't even have a name yet. But some are better than others, we think, according to an organisation called FEMS, which is the Federation of European Microbiological Societies. One of the most promising, uh, I'm going to struggle here, a lot of these drugs have rather tongue-twisty names. It's Remdesivir, which was the drug that was tested against Ebola in 2016. Uh, It failed that test, but is in clinical trials against COVID-19 and is showing some effectiveness. Uh, I understand it's actually being used in patients, so I don't know any of the details on that. And the other drug that FEMS picked out for special mention is Coletra, which is a combination of two HIV drugs. Again, a bit of a mouthful, Ritonavir and Lopinavir. Uh, Again, it's in clinical trials. It looks promising. But that comes with all the usual kind of health warnings about experimental drugs. Most of them fail. Uh, this is a fast-moving area, though, um, and I think we can be reasonably confident that a drug will be available sooner than a vaccine, which is probably 18 months away at least. But don't we can't rely on any of this stuff to get us out of jail. OK, well, let's uh, now bring in David Alexander, Professor of Risk and Disaster Reduction at University College London. David, thanks for joining us. Can you give us a picture of how you see the current situation you, with all your experience of pandemic planning and emergency preparation over the years? What's, the, what's it look like at the moment? Well, I've been in the field of emergency planning and management now for 40 years. And in the last 10, we have devoted attention to pandemic planning, although perhaps we thought that the most likely source of it would be influenza. 
Now, um, COVID-19 is not influenza, although, frankly, from the point of view of emergency planning and management, it is pretty much identical uh, with regard to the things that need to be done. Very complex indeed. There was a WHO report on pandemics and pandemic planning in 2005, and it was sent out to countries and they were invited to reflect on it. And uh, some countries, notably the UK and the USA, put out further reports on their national situation regarding planning. And planning went ahead, apparently. The trouble is now we don't really seem to see much sign of it, either in the US or here in Britain. Um, a lot of things were identified as issues and problems, but little or nothing was done about them. Now, there are reasons for this. For example, in terms of influenza, the stockpiling of antivirals was done at a time when there was a substantial influenza scare, or should I call it a threat. And of course, they reached their sell-by date and had to be destroyed and so on, and voices were raised about wasting money and so on. So what really stands out to you is the, the things that we really should have worked out beforehand um, uh, with regards to this particular pandemic. I think first and foremost, the question of uh, hospitals and equipment and personal protective gear in hospitals and the fact that we really did need massive redundancy there. And although it is expensive to buy the equipment and then not use it, really the decision makers did not engage with the fact that at a certain point in time, suddenly that need will become absolutely paramount. And we did know this, we knew it years ago, and it was highlighted, but nothing was done about it. Now, pandemics are also a socioeconomic problem, of course, and really that's what marks them out. They're not merely a medical problem, they're a social problem, they're an economic problem. Therefore, what could be done to prepare for the socioeconomic side? Solidarity and the beefing up of the welfare state is an absolute essential in a situation like this, but it is rather hard to improvise that. And really, I think more could have been done to um, work through the scenario. So, so David, I, I went for a walk this morning and I saw my local coffee shop was full of people packed in eating croissants. It was, you know, the, the windows were steamed up. Um, people don't yet seem to be taking this seriously. Now, You've recommended that we shouldn't discuss the worst case scenario, but sometimes I feel like, you know, we need to scare people into action. But why do you think we shouldn't discuss the worst case scenario? Well, I think we need to be realistic and we need to ask ourselves, is the worst case scenario realistic? It might become realistic. That much is certain. It might become realistic. At present, I don't think it is realistic. I think rather than trying to scare people to do things, which really I don't see as a very productive approach, I think somehow we have to improve our communications in a way that gets them to act. Now, um, people suffer from normalcy bias. That is to say, if faced with a range of options and we are in a situation of massive uncertainty, then they will tend to cling to those that are most reassuring. And the most reassuring option is it's not going to be so bad. You could see it in the government. You could see it in decision-making. Perhaps a little less so now as things develop, but 
Uh, that's how it, it was, normalcy bias. And somehow they have to be shaken out of that. This is dangerous. So we have to dev- devote some big resources to preparing to meet the brunt of this pandemic. But we also need to think about the future. So what should this experience tell us about modern life? And it's not just about getting things back to normal, is it? It's about making them better than normal, because normal is what's got us into this mess. Right. Um Well, firstly, will there ever be normal again in the sense that we understood it before? This is something of an epoch-changing event that we're going through. I hope very sincerely it doesn't become as epoch-changing as the worst-case scenario uh, makes it out to be. But somehow I can't imagine us going fully back to normal within my lifetime, however long that is or however short it is for that matter. Um, I think essentially we have to start to take emergencies, civil contingencies and disasters more seriously than we have been. Now, those of us who work in this field have been saying that for years and years, vox clamatis in deserto. In other words, nobody has been listening to us um, very much. Uh, But the fact is, I think we've got to be very much more prudent. The challenge of the century is to get ordinary people involved in managing their own risks in countries like Britain. And and lastly, what, what advice can you give us? Because you're a professor of disaster reduction. So, you know, if anyone can give good advice, you can. What, what should we be doing now? Well, I hope so. Um, I think you've got to monitor the situation. You've got to ensure that you always get information and news on it and think about what it really means and what to do and consider what you do on a daily basis, all the time. Um, that, that means being reasonable, in other words, not dashing down to the supermarket and trying to clear off the shelves and so on. Um, but it also means thinking about considering, well, what do I do next? Is it the right thing to do? Does it protect me? Does it put anyone else at risk? Is it somehow egotistical or generous or, or what? And I think we've got to try and reinforce each other, support each other and um, get through this together rather than by rank individualism. I think we'll do that. Um, Sociologists talk about something called the therapeutic community that you get in the early stages of disaster. In other words, rather than people fighting each other in some kind of Hollywood-style breakdown of society, scenario. Instead, people do tend to come together and help each other and be more considerate and ask each other, well, what are your needs and can I help you with them and things like that. And the more of that we have, really, the better off we're going to be. Great, great advice. Thanks, uh, David Alexander from University College London. Now it's time for social isolation tips from New Scientist. Many people worldwide are now practicing social distancing, which is taking measures like working from home, not using public transport, and cutting down on social contact, while others have had to go into self-isolation, which is a bit more like quarantine for people who may have the virus, or in some cases, these are measures being taken by people who may be particularly vulnerable um, and involve just not going out and trying to limit all possible contact. The whole of New Scientist has been working home for about a week now. Um, We've all been sharing our tips with each other on how best to cope with the change. Rowan, what have you been getting up to? Um, Well, I followed uh, one of our own recipes that we published a couple of weeks ago, and I'm making kimchi. So I bought some Korean chilli and cabbage, and 
Well, come to think of it, that might actually help with uh, social distancing because it does ferment and makes <laughs> quite a smell. But um, I've also bought some potatoes to grow, so I'm getting quite preppy in my stuff. And I bought some flowers um, to help pollinators in the garden. So, um, yeah, I'm doing lots of sort of that sort of preparation. How about you, Graham? Well, having just written a story about how important exercise is for your immune system, I've been taking lots of time to go running and cycling. I know that maybe isn't social distancing because you have to run past people on the street, but I reckon I'm going fast enough not to give them any sort of trouble. Um, Yeah, so doing a bit of Pilates at home, generally trying to keep my immune system in good shape by eating kimchi. That's another of the tips in my forthcoming story. Fermented food is very good for your microbiome, so nice work, Rowan. (laughs) And Penny, what about you? Yeah, I've been embracing exercise. Um, I've been going for a walk religiously first thing in the morning. Um, read a great book by uh, Linda Geddes last year on how important it is to get daylight for your immune system, especially first thing in the morning. And now that I'm spending so much time indoors, I'm really aware of how little light I'm getting. So um, very much looking forward to my daily trip out the house. I've also sort of uh, embraced YouTube workouts and I've also been thinking about mental health as well so um light and exercise we know are both really good for warding off things like depression especially and and anxiety but also social isolation can be really rough so i feel like i've gone back to the 90s i've started calling people again and having phone calls rather than Hmm. whatsapping and emailing all the time and and i found that's been really great time out we want to let you know a bit more about our sponsor the financial times As you can probably tell, we're well abreast of all the scientific developments of the coronavirus outbreak, but this pandemic is hitting every part of our lives and the FT is doing a great job of really digging into its impact on industry and business. And the FT isn't just doing that in its paper or online. Like us, it has its own suite of podcasts. A new episode of their show, The Rackman Review, came out this week and explores how a hyper-connected world is particularly vulnerable to global emergencies like the one we're currently facing. You can find all of their shows on Acast and their website. It's a difficult time with a lot of misinformation out there. So as one of the world's most trusted news organisations, the FT is an important addition to your daily reading. Join the debate at ft.com. Okay, let's bring in our second guest of the week. Uh, She's Kate Jones, Professor of Ecology and Biodiversity at University College London. Welcome, Kate. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Hi. Are you working uh, at home? Are you self-isolating yet? Uh, Yes, I am working at home. Um, Self-isolating, perhaps not quite, but uh, getting out and doing some exercise. Yeah. So, Kate, one of your research specialties is looking at how climate change and other environmental challenges impact the diseases we get from wildlife like Ebola or SARS. So can you tell us about this and perhaps speak to what extent you think that human-driven environmental change is responsible for the emergence of the coronavirus? I think it helps if you uh, consider this in, in two parts. Like The first is about the animal itself and the, these, the wildlife and ecosystems. And, you know, the all-wildlife host pathogens you know as as we do but then what are what are we doing what are we changing to their ecosystems that's making these spillovers uh, more likely from animals to humans so it's it's important because two-thirds of all human infectious diseases have an animal source in the past so these pathogens from wildlife are an incredibly important source 
of new human uh, diseases. So it's trying to think about what are we doing to ecosystems that's causing us to change our connection to wildlife and also mix up uh, wildlife species so that they come into contact with each other you know, in new ways that they haven't really done before. And that's also a potential source for mixing pathogens together, which could then cause spillovers into the human population. So what, what seems to be the biggest things that we've been doing that might have been um, triggering any uh, increase or increase in mixing of um, wild diseases into the human population? Well, I think we're moving animals and wildlife around the planet like we've never done before. So we, we move them around for the pet trade. We uh, consume them more and more. Um, and also we use them for, for medicine. So that we're, we're, we're transporting and moving and exploiting wildlife species like, like it's never happened before. And also we're destroying and changing landscapes into ones which are, are more human-dominated with more human uses. And so th- these, these changes um, tend to alter the ecosystems which uh, we're in and change the transmission dynamics between humans and people. And so that you have more of a, a chance of uh, a spillover happening when you've got these altered ecosystems. And then because there's so many of us, uh, these spillovers, you know, will happen all the time uh, normally. But then, because there's so many of us, a spillover has more of a chance to spread within the human population because we're so connected to each other. And then it's got more of a chance to go into a pandemic because of the amount of uh, flights and roads and uh, networks that we have with each other is greater than it's ever been at any point in our history. So how do we get the genie back into the bottle? Like, how do we rein in our activity in all these different ways that you've, you've mentioned there? How do, we, how do we go about changing that? <laughs> I think that's a, that's a, a multi-million dollar question. Mm. Um, I think we need to focus on valuing our ecosystems in a much more holistic way. We need to try and understand the impacts of changing ecosystems uh, much more uh, cohesively. So, if you're going to, uh, you know, change a landscape from rainforest into an agricultural plantation of, you know, palm oil, for example, let's, let's have a think about well, what that does. What does that mean? Okay, you'll make a, a profit from palm oil or the crop, and that will support local human communities. But may it also increase, you know, or decrease carbon storage, or increase the chances that climate change will have an impact on flooding, so less resilience in the system? Or could it impact human infectious disease outbreaks? So we need ways to not just value the profit in the short term, but feed that back into the system so that we understand the consequences and the long-term effects of changing ecosystems and taking a, a more landscape level approach and a more ecological approach, as in, i.e., understanding the connections between us and nature and between wildlife species and their provision of services to people, so that we can really understand and manage our landscapes in a much more joined up, smarter way. 
Yeah, so the new virus is supposedly originated from the so-called wet market in Wuhan, and I know that you've been to similar markets, uh, such as the notorious one in Lagos in Nigeria. I wonder if you could tell us about what those places are like. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't want to demonise wet markets. Uh, wet markets are like farmers' markets, really, uh, throughout most, most of Asia, and that they provide you know a huge amount of resources and nutrition for people, and the, you know the backbone. Uh, of some societies and and very culturally significant so it's just when they have these uh, live animal markets within the wet markets I think that's that's an issue and banning those things is incredibly complex right it's very easy for me to sit here in North London my nice kitchen and say ban wet markets in uh, in Wuhan or wherever or in Lagos but I don't live there and, you know, I don't have uh, food security issues, although, you know, we do have loo rolls <laughs> mm. <laughs> issues at the moment. But, you know, it's very easy for me to say that. But I, I think we need to think about the communities there and, and providing them uh, with more biosecurity or more regulations um, so that we can control this trade in, in better ways, but more equitable ways. And, and who should be in charge of, of making these changes or individual governments to improve biosecurity? And, and how do we sort of nudge them into doing that? I think we need to give the communities the information that they need to make the right decisions or to make informed decisions about, you know, how to manage their own communities. So I, so I think it's about educating communities within those systems to understand the risks and then taking their own decisions about what to do about it so i'm i'm not one for imposing government uh, top-down effects on local communities without having their buy-in so i think this needs a cultural shift and a, a cultural shift can only be brought about if you have the buy-in of local communities it's hard to think about the opportunity that this could present for us at this time when we're in the, the eye of the storm but we do have the chance to change things um, so that we don't go back to normal but we can try and create something better in in the ways you've been saying so you know what other advice do you have for us on, on how we can do that? I think it would be really great to re start to restore landscapes and to protect the ones that we have but we need to do it in a in a sympathetic way to local human communities and, and their needs. Uh, and that's incredibly difficult. But I think by starting to understand what the risks are of changing landscapes in these ways, we can start to understand that the choices we have and the win-wins or the win-loses of the situations that we're, we're going to be faced with you know, for example, the sustainable development goals, you know, there's, there's quite a few of those. And by reaching some of them, I think there are going to be some impacts, negative impacts on the others. And so we need to try to figure out what those are and try and optimise the system so that we maintain ecosystem services, i.e. the things that nature provides to us, like clean water, clean air, resilience from uh, floods, um, stopping climate change so we need to understand what those benefits are and what we're sacrificing when we're changing landscapes that that's a really big kind of whole world problem who should be leading on this <laughs> my god 
<laughs> I'm just a scientist. <laughs> Fine. Fair enough. <laughs> um, I don't know. I think governments should be doing that. You know, I think uh, the UK government has proposed the Environment Bill, um, which has got a very interesting landscape level approach to understanding, you know, what we should be doing with farming, what should we do with tree planting and, and climate adaptation. So, you know, maybe governments can take some of this lead in understanding these landscape level approaches. But that's not, not to say that you can't do some something as well. You, you know, there's lots of farmers that have been deciding to rewild, you know, re restore some of those ecosystems and seeing like lots and lots of benefits from doing that. What's the evidence that um, these diseases from wildlife are increasing? Well, yeah, it's kind of mixed, really. But there have been quite a few new outbreaks over the last few years, like Ebola and MERS and last time with SARS. And um, a, a paper that I did in, in back in the midst of time in 2008, I did a massive survey of all of the, the first moments of when uh, spillover happened, i.e., a spillover from a wildlife host into or an animal host into a human happened and controlling for reporting effort I got a significant increase in the number over time so that was back in 2008 and there's no reason to think that that hasn't um, increased from then the other thing is spillovers happen all the time but we most of them are, are totally fine you know to totally don't cause any any problem at all and it's just some of them that are, are cause a problem. And then there's very, very, very few of them that can actually then go to human to human. So most spillovers don't cause any problems. Some of them just, uh, you know, ca cause a problem in the human and then stop and don't get transmitted, like rabies, for example. And then some of them very rarely go from human to human and then some of them very 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 rarely go human to human and take over the world <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's kind of a stuttering chain of um of actions so there is this you know very it's just very it's fascinating i find it fascinating to understand what those drivers are at each process and each stage so if there's one thing that we are learning from this current situation is that we do need to be better prepared to um, nip things in the bud in the future. Well, yes, but um, we've been predicting that something like this would happen hmm. for decades and nobody has done anything about it. Yeah. So, you know, it's not surprising to many of us that this has happened. And, and in fact, actually, the if you look at the risk register for the UK, pandemic flu is is the biggest risk and you know globally that's the biggest risk too so people do know this and do have plans but spillovers from from animal populations are are really uh scary because humans have not adapted to them and and we're a completely naive population which hasn't hasn't had chance to build up any immunity so they're particularly problematic um, also, they're not adapted to the human system. So a pathogen is not wanting to kill its host. I mean, that's completely counterproductive. It wants to evolve with its host so that it, it spreads more easily. So, But for these zoonotic pathogens, these ones from animals, they're not adapted to it, the host it's jumped into. So it, it, it tends to cause more problems. 
Okay, Kate, look, thanks so much for joining us. Um, good luck. Good luck in your <laughs> social distancing. <laughs> I actually got another uh, bat pathogen a couple of years ago from a bat cave in Puerto Rico. So my lungs are completely riddled with uh, calcified nodules. So <laughs> okay. that's a that's oh, a great a great note to end on. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> I still like bats though. Bats are still awesome. going to round off today's show with a reminder that there is a lot going on in the world that isn't coronavirus related. Graham, why don't you go first? Yeah, so we've got a really nice archaeology story this week. Uh, Obviously, we've all heard of Stonehenge, but now we have Bonehenge. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is a circular structure made of mammoth bones. Uh, It was discovered in Russia. It's 22,000 years old, which is kind of the height of the last Ice Age. It's in southern Russia, sort of halfway between Moscow and Rostov-on-Don, um, where the glaciers probably hadn't reached. And it's it's a remarkable structure. It's about 12 metres across. The mammoth bone walls are about a metre or two thick and maybe half a metre high. And there are a lot of bones. If you look at a picture of this thing, it's absolutely littered with huge mammoth bones. Um, it was obviously built deliberately, but what was it built for? We, we just don't know. Uh, one idea is that it was a dwelling. Uh, we know that Inuit sometimes use whale bones to build their structures because they don't have access to other building materials like wood and stone. Um, it's also been suggested it was a place for processing food. And uh, another idea, which is a kind of go-to explanation when archaeologists don't know what something is for, is that it was a ritual site. But archaeologists don't like that explanation because it's kind of a catch-all explanation for something that we don't really understand. Uh, interestingly, we also know that Neanderthals built structures from mammoth bones, but again, we don't know what they were for. This is not a Neanderthal one because Neanderthals are long extinct by the time this thing was built. I mean, maybe another idea is they were just bored because they were socially isolating. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I've got a planet where it rains liquid iron, uh, which actually sounds quite attractive at the moment, only having a rain of liquid iron to deal with. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But actually, it's not a good option for us to move to. It's a planet, it's an exoplanet called WASP-76b. It's about 390 light years away, and it's a gas giant similar to Jupiter. Uh, But it's much closer to its star than Jupiter is to our sun. And it's got a locked orbit, so one side is always facing its star, which means it heats up to 2,400 degrees Celsius on that side and, and 1,400 degrees on the, on the permanent night side. But what's cool is that astronomers have looked at the atmosphere of this exoplanet and by measuring the light that comes through the atmosphere, they've detected gaseous iron in the atmosphere. And they've found evidence that this iron condenses into clouds on the dark side of the planet where it rains liquid iron. So I, I think it's pretty amazing that you can learn this kind of information about an exoplanet 390 light years away, uh, that it rains liquid iron. Uh, Penny, what else have you got? Yeah, I, it turns out Lucy was born to run. Um, I love this story. So um, this is about the origins of running on two feet. Um, and it looks like our ancestors may actually have started doing this a million years earlier than we thought. We know that our ancestors probably started walking on two feet more than 10 million years ago, but we did think that um, we probably didn't start running on two feet until maybe nearly even two million years ago, so quite a long uh, difference between the two. 
But now an analysis of Australopithecus afarensis, which is the iconic species that the famous Lucy specimen belonged to, an analysis of this um, species suggests that we may actually, well, our ancestors may actually have been able to run nearly four million years ago. So Lucy and her kin had relatively short ape-like legs. Uh, the structure of their heel bones actually suggests they had a long Achilles tendon, uh, just like us. And so these tendons um, in us, they stretch more than halfway up our lower leg. And that means that we can explosively release elastic energy when we run. And it looks like, even though Lucy was this uh, ape, uh, ape, really, uh, with short legs, um, she and her kin also had this long tendon that goes up most of the way of the leg and could have allowed some really speedy movement. I think that's really cool. One of, one of the things we know about our species that really sets us apart from other animals is our ability to run and run really well mm. over long dif- distances. So it's, it's quite fun to get an insight into when that really started evolving. And in mathematical news, the Abel Prize has been awarded. Graham, you can tell us about this. Okay, so I'm a bit out of my depth on this one, but I'll give it a try. Uh, The Abel Prize is basically the Nobel Prize for Mathematics. Uh, Like the Nobels, it's awarded by the Norwegian Academy of Science and Letters. It's modelled on the Nobels and was talked about for decades, but has only been awarded really since 2003. So who won it this year? Uh, This is the easy bit. It's going to be shared by Hillel Furstenberg of Hebrew University of Jerusalem, and Gregory Margulis of Yale University. And now the difficult bit, what did they win it for? Well, they won it for pioneering the use of methods from probability and dynamics in group theory, number theory, and combinatorics. Uh, I don't really know what that means, but apparently it has something to do with chaos theory. It has something to do with random walks, which is essentially what would happen if you walked through a city and used a coin toss to decide which direction to turn each time. Uh, And I understand they extended this sort of quite esoteric mathematical discipline into much wider areas of mathematics. Anyway, the awards ceremony was supposed to happen later this year, but has been postponed until 2021 because, well, you know, you guessed it. Yeah. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. Just a reminder that you can read all about these stories and much more at newscientist.com. If you would like to subscribe, there's a special offer for podcast listeners only. A subscription gets you access to our digital app edition, all the articles on our website, and a huge archive of stimulating articles and video talks from leading scientists. Get 20% off a subscription using the code POD20. Yep, that's POD20. Enter that at checkout and get your discount. Uh, We've also got a sister show that's just launched, The Big Interview. Uh, In the first episode, we've got a fantastic chat with climate legend Cristiano Figueres. Do check it out. Do get in touch with us on Twitter at NewScientistPod or email us at podcast at NewScientist.com and let us know what you'd like to hear more of on the show. Stay safe, everyone, and good luck. New episodes go live each Friday and do subscribe to our show at the usual places you get your podcasts. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye. This is a Right Angles production. You can find out more by visiting rightangles.global.